Villas Grace Church, building relationships that make followers of Jesus. Know, grow, go. To know Him, to grow in Him, to go with Him. Yeah, thank you, Joe. One more round of applause for Joe. Thank you, Eddie, for reminding us that we have such talent here at Villa's Grace. I'm truly blown away with what I see the Lord doing uh, here. It, hasn't it been truly remarkable over the last year and a half, two years, to see what the Lord has been doing? Uh, just people he's been bringing together, people who have been here historically, new people coming, and, and to see everybody fused together. I'm, I'm truly, truly excited about the potential that we have to reach people for the sake of the gospel. And one of the reasons why I'm so excited about that is for the reason why we're going through this sermon series. It's the reason why we've titled the sermon series, The Church Under Siege, because we take God's word serious, don't we? We stand, we stand upon the foundation of the Bible. So let us not be fooled as we go through this series and apply everything that we're being encouraged by through, the God, through God's word that we need to understand that the church is under siege. It's under attack. And if we don't know his word, guess what? We're easy prey, aren't we? We don't want to be easy prey. We want to know God's truth. We want to go forward with God's truth. Our whole purpose is to see people coming to a saving faith in Jesus. We want to see conversion growth here. And we believe that the Lord can use us at Villa's Grace. Allow us to pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for what we see you doing here again. We all know that none of this is credited to one individual. It's actually credited to you. Everything that has been happening, everything that we see you doing, we know it's only because of your divine power. We pray for you to continue to be with the Russell family, our missionaries in the Philippines. Lord, I pray that you're with Joy Ministry and what they are doing with their prison ministry and what their future looks like with Kathy and Lois. It's amazing to see how this small little church can reach worldwide, nationwide. It's truly remarkable. And we know that's, again, due to you and your divine power. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. I'll never forget when I was a young boy coming home from school, I was in first grade, and the oddest thing was going down in my parents' living room. See, I walked in the door, and I saw my dad sitting in a chair in the living room with my younger brother on his knee. And what was odd was the fact that my dad never was home that early. Usually, he was home between 6 and 9 p.m. every night. And this particular day after school, about 3 p.m., he was home with my brother on his knee, and he had this look on his face, this really long look, and I'm like, okay, hold on. Something's not right here. My dad's home. He's holding my brother. My mom was in the room. My grandparents were in the room, and nobody was talking. It was like they were waiting for us to come in to give us this announcement, to drop this news on us. See, what happened was this. When my younger brother was about three or four years old, he was at my grandparents' house because my grandparents, my mom was an only child, so they lived for us. 
My parents had four kids. I'm one of four siblings. Or I have three other siblings. And we spent all our time at our grandparents' house. We never had to go to daycare. We had grandma and grandpa. They moved from just outside of Chicago, the south side of Chicago, Hammond, Indiana, to a small town called Warsaw, Indiana, just to live with us and be near us. What happened was my grandparents purchased a home when they moved to this small town where it kind of sat up on a hill, and then the driveway went down, then they had the main road, then there was another hill, and then that went into a pond. My younger brother went outside to work with my grandfather while he was working in the yard, and he slipped away and got into my grandfather's Lincoln. Now, I say Lincoln and Lincoln Continental as a shout-out to my grandfather because he worked at the Ford Motor Company on the assembly line, so everything was Ford, Ford, Ford. Ford was really, actually really good to our family. My grandmother lived to 96 years old, and she still received his pension 25 years after his death, which I thought was pretty remarkable of them to honor that. The government made him do it, but that's besides the point. His Lincoln Continental looked like this car after my brother got into it. See, what happened was my brother somehow got the car into neutral, and it rolled down the side and into this pond. Well, it just so happened that there's this huge printing press just down the road from their neighborhood, and there was a man by the name of Michael Orr who was driving by and noticed the car in the pond. And then he turned back around and came to my grandparents who were standing outside, and they were elderly at the time. And I don't think I ever saw them swim, so there was no way that they were going to get in themselves. And he said, is somebody in that car? My grandma said, yeah, somebody's in that car. So he, without hesitation, jumped in, smashed the window, and pulled my brother out and saved him. Now, what's interesting to me was, in the heat of the moment, he didn't stop and say, how dare you? You were watching your grandchild, and they ended up there? No. He just wanted to know, is there somebody in the car? And when my grandmother said yes, he immediately ran down the hill, jumped in with all his clothes on, and saved my brother from death. Church, God has chosen not to judge us either. He didn't hesitate. We all need saved, don't we? He has jumped into our lives to rescue us from death. Think about a major accident. Who shows up? There's three public servants that show up to every major auto accident. Fire department, EMS, and the police department, right? The fire department assists in cleaning up and getting the jaws of life out maybe to extract whoever's in the car. The EMS is served by EMTs who provide medical assistance right then and there and then transport them to the hospital to get them saved if they need to be saved by a doctor. And the police investigate, figure out who was at fault, right? See, what I find ironic about these three coming together to help save somebody, it's this. God can do all three collectively at once. See, God saves us, he cleans up our life, and then he has the ability to also judge as well. That's powerful. Think about that. He has the power to save us, to clean up our life, and then to judge us. And that brings us to the title of our sermon this morning. Our title this morning is this.
The judges rescue. The judges rescue. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10 are the verses we're covering this morning. See, last week, Pastor Jared walked us through how false teachers pervert the gospel. They may seem like solid Christians. They may talk about Jesus. You may hear a sermon that maybe has a few verses from the Bible on the screens, but however, when it comes down to it, they deny his power. And they don't just come out right and deny the Lord's power, but trust me, if you listen to what they're really saying, their complete body of work, they're denying the power of Jesus. See, Pastor Jared encouraged us in this fact. And that fact will, God's truth will remain forever. So if we know God's truth, we're comforted in the fact that it's going to remain forever. Today we're going to see something a little bit different, but it piggybacks off of last week. Today we're going to see how God is the final an ultimate judge. And that's so important for us to accept that fact. That's a hard fact for us to accept. I get it. I don't like it all the time. But God is the final and ultimate judge who amazingly rescued us, now, now get this, from his judgment. Mind blown. So let's get into this text and see what Peter has for us. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-10. through 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to change of gloomy darkness to keep until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for the righteous man lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Amen. These verses this morning are defined by this sentence. God will rescue the godly prior to judging the wicked. God will rescue the godly prior to judging the wicked. That is our great encouragement this morning from these verses. But let's ask this question. Who are the godly? Who are they? The godly are those who trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Every last one of you here this morning who trusts in Jesus for your salvation, you are the godly. Doesn't that not just give you great hope and encouragement as you move forward? Especially, I don't know if you picked up on some of the characters that were just mentioned here in these first few verses. It gives me great encouragement, especially knowing that. But do you know what our problem is? 
See, our problem is we forget that God can do this, what you're going to see right here, to the world at any time he wants. We seem to forget that, don't we? He has the ability to destroy this world whenever he chooses. Why? Because he's the judge. That's why. We forget that he can judge it all at once, anytime he chooses. And remember that as we observe these first three prior judgments from the past, because that's what we see here at the beginning of the text. These verses right here, verse 4 through 8. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous lots, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So let's break these three past judgments down from God. Verse 4, look at the very beginning. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, this is a rather significant statement. As we take this statement in, it has great weight. See, the significance is in who the angels are. Angels served God prior to the creation of the universe. That's who these angels are. But do you know what this means? This means that God not only judges the material world, in which we live in, but he also judges the spiritual world. Church, no one, nothing is exempt from God's judgment. And false teachers think they're exempt from God's judgment. That's the, that's the problem. The onslaught that is upon the church, the false teachers bringing this false narrative of a gospel, they are the ones who think that they are beyond judgment. So how do you recognize such false teaching? Because that's a legitimate question for us to ask. How do you know if what you're hearing is actually coming from somebody that would be considered a false teacher? See, I think it's very simple. An easy way to distinguish between a legitimate preacher-teacher of the gospel and a false preacher-teacher of the gospel is this. A false teacher is always going to sell love without the judgment. They're always going to sell love without the judgment. God's love doesn't wrong our sin. I'm sorry. It doesn't. But his judgment because of his love 
does. If God loved and didn't judge, I would ask this question. I would ask, do you know what I'm learning from verse 4? Do you want to know what I'm learning from verse 4? What I'm learning in my life from verse 4 is that if God loved and didn't judge, His love wouldn't really be all that special. It wouldn't. Love without judging isn't very special. However, since God is the judge, His love is all the more special. Do you know why? Because as judge, He doesn't have to choose to judge in love. He's made the decision to love us. And as the judge, He doesn't have to. These angels have been cast into hell. Why? The rebellion. At the end of verse 4, it says, kept until the judgment. So when is this judgment? When will we see this judgment happen? This particular judgment that's being discussed here will happen at the end of the millennium. See, Jesus will come rapture his church, seven-year rapture. He comes seven-year rapture, then the thousand-year millennium reign, and then this is the final judgment that he's talking about. Church, the judgment's punishment can be delayed. It doesn't have to happen immediately. Our second and third past judgment by God were on the material world that we see this morning. The first starts off on the spiritual world. God very clearly showing us that I can judge the spiritual world too. And then he gives us two examples of how he judged the material world. First, what do we see this morning? The judgment of the flood. The rest of humanity was not spared, but Noah and the seven were, weren't they? See, Noah was spared by God's grace simply because he trusted God. So if we know that Noah is saved and spared by God's grace because he trusted God, my question is, knowing that 2 Peter is addressing false teaching in the church, would be how do we know or how do we recognize how a false teacher would spin that? If they're going to teach that Noah was saved by grace and that's why he was spared, how would they take that truth and then spin it? See, what a false teacher is going to tell you, they're going to say Jesus plus. Well, they're not going to say Jesus plus. We're going to call it Jesus plus, but they're going to teach you the Jesus plus theology. I'll give you an example, and it's very rampant. I've always tried to have the attitude, not that my attitude's always great, which many of you can attest to. How come only Pastor Jared laughed? Thank you. I needed that. The Jesus plus. I've always tried to have the attitude of anytime, anywhere, for free. I don't even care. If I have an opportunity to preach the gospel, I'm going to be there. We got asked to go to a place when I was still in seminary, had an opportunity to preach the gospel, stayed with the family. This family we stayed with was peculiar, I'll say. 
It was one of those houses that had knickknacks everywhere, but every knickknack had something to do with scripture or a verse or something from the Bible. It was almost overwhelming. It was almost like, what are you really hiding from here? And I'll never forget, I was walking out the door and I looked up and had a little placard and it said, plan ahead, Noah did. And you know, as a Christian, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to plan ahead because Noah did. That's the Christian thing to do, right? That's Jesus plus. Church, Noah did not plan ahead. Noah was simply obedient. It never rained before the flood. He only was doing what God asked him to do. But when we need something plus Jesus, that's a false gospel. We need nothing other than Jesus. We don't need anything added to Him. And this brings us to our third and past judgment from God. Sodom and Gomorrah. That's brought up this morning. Take a look at the second half of verse 6. Making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Okay, so why were those in Sodom and Gomorrah considered ungodly? This is very important for our culture today. Why were they considered ungodly? Simply due to homosexuality. That's why. Remember the two angels that lived with Lot's family? Do you remember that account? The two angels that lived with Lot's family? What happened? The wicked men of the city. No sin. What did they want to do? They wanted to have sexual relations with the two men who were really two angels, but they thought that there were two men. And what did Lot do? To protect these two angels who he didn't know were angels, he said, take my daughters who are virgins. Do you, do you see what's going on here? Do you recognize what we're seeing here? So how would a false teacher spin this? How could we recognize false teaching out of this? A false teacher is never going to classify homosexuality as a sin. They'll dance their way around it as they're asked the question, but they'll never distinctly classify it as a sin. But church, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. A sin is a sin is a sin. All sin has been judged by God, is being judged by God, and will be judged by God. So let's go back to Lot now that we understand that. What happened with his two daughters in the cave? Oh, that's right. Incest, right? Lot slept with his two daughters. Sin is sin is sin. So how about you? Huh? How about you? I am going to go out on a limb right now and say every last one of us here this morning can relate to Lot. If you walk in here this morning and you have no sexual sin, I would be floored. See, there's a reason why we're addressing this in the text, and especially as it pertains to culture as we move forward. 
But when I see this, I say sin is sin is sin, and I find my own self being inserted into the text because I'm guilty as charged too. We got a problem on our hands with classifying certain sins, and false teachers know that because most Christians say, well, this sin's a little bit worse than this sin, and that sin's not as bad as this sin. Well, you know what I say? Sin is sin is sin in the eyes of the Lord, and He is the judge, not me. Not you. So what is Lot called in verse 7? Say it out loud. What is he called in verse 7? What's that? I, I, I can't hear you. He had sex with his daughters. He lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. He had to enjoy some of the sexual sin in that city because what did God ask him to do when he told him to flee? Don't look back. Kind of sounds like repentance, doesn't it? Who looked back? Oh, that's right, Lot's wife. And what happened to her? She gone, poof. Sin is sin is sin. Righteous Lot. So hold on a second here. We got to ask this question. How does sexually sinful heterosexuals become righteous? The same way a sexually sinful homosexual does. The same exact way. What, is, what does the Bible tell us? By grace, through faith. God's grace allowed Lot to have faith in his promises. Even though Lot was a sinner, look at the last half of verse 8 when it says this. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Can you identify with this yourself? Are you not a sinner who is tormented by the sin you see and hear? As a believer, that is the, the, that's the tension that we walk in every single day, knowing that we're sinful and that we contribute to the sin ourselves, but then we're still tormented by the sin that we hear about or see in this world. And that was Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. But his righteousness was due to his faith in what God had promised. Because the last thing we want to do is become so apathetic to the sin of this world that we don't care. See, God is so opposed to sin that he had to judge the angels. He had to flood this earth. And he had to incinerate Sodom and Gomorrah. And we should be as opposed to sin too. After all, just like Noah and his family, just like Lot and his daughters, We've been saved, saved by grace through faith in Jesus in which he has saved us ultimately from his final judgment, which is why we're saying this this morning. Our main idea for these verses is this, God will rescue the godly prior to judging the wicked. We were all once considered wicked before Jesus entered our lives and converted us. We're all in this together. 
This is the message that we get to go take to others, that God will rescue the godly, those who have faith in Jesus, prior to judging the wicked. And we're asking this question then, who are the godly? This, precisely, the message we go with, those who trust in Jesus for their salvation. So as we continue to move forward here, do you ever feel as though you're constantly under attack? Do you ever feel like that? Things going on? Now, I know you're looking at the screen right now and you're thinking there's a lot of fireballs, a lot of death and destruction. Dun, 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 dun. Had a world on fire. Now we have what looks like Pearl Harbor, or maybe not Pearl Harbor. It could have been Pearl Harbor. I'm not sure. Do you ever feel like you're under attack? I mean, could you imagine truly being under, under attack like this? But do we not feel like we're under attack in our own lives? Church, the spiritual realm is real. It is so real. The spiritual realm is real. And that's where the attacks are coming from in your life. Do you feel like your finances are being attacked? Maybe a relationship with your spouse? your boyfriend or girlfriend. Some of us here are dealing with babies, newborns. That can cause us a lot of tension. Some of us, toddlers, tweens, teens, teenagers. How about those dealing with adult children? My parents continuously tell me, you'll never stop being a parent. And the more people I get to fellowship with, who have adult children, the more I realize how true that is. Is there drama between you and a friend? How about you and a coworker or a boss? The list goes on and on as sin goes on and on. Church, there are some good news from the Bible, though. And that good news is this. We've been rescued. I don't care what's going on in your life. There's always room to be reminded of your rescue. Because of what Jesus Christ did for me, I've been rescued. Now that's easier said than done in the moment. I get that. I'm a champion of learning my lesson in hindsight. But there's great hope in knowing that we've been rescued. And we've been rescued from all the wicked that will eventually come to an end. And that's what we're seeing here. So let's check this out in our last two verses this morning. Verse 9 and verse 10. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Look what it says right here. It says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. See, the word trials can also mean attack in the original in which this was written. See, sure, God can save you from your current trials. He did not, did he not save Noah? Did he not save Lot? Yes, he can save you from your current trials. However, this isn't as much about your current trials as it is what's going to happen with things to come. See, trials can also mean the test, and that's why we say that. It doesn't just mean attack. It can also mean the test. And the second coming of Jesus is known as the final test. The second coming of Jesus ushers in his millennial reign on earth, and at that time, those who have faith in him have been rescued from all 
eternity. They've been rescued for all eternity. On the heavens and new earth, new heavens and new earth. But however, we need to remember that the unrighteous, as it says here, are under punishment until the day of punishment. Basically, what's happening here is God is holding, or He's actually guarding them until His millennial reign is over. Where Jesus will judge all the ungodly that ever walk this earth, and then He will cast them into the lake of fire. Think about that. The one who left heaven, took on human form, died upon a cross, was buried, resurrected from the grave because He loves us. He did this in order to save us from destruction. Is also the one who judges, who sits on that seat and says, you go here, you go here. That's why His love is that powerful. Because He can do that. And if He's choosing to love us, knowing that He could send us to the lake of fire, that makes His love all the more special. And as I call Mike up, I want to just ask you this. Knowing that about the Lord, it kind of makes all our current trials or our current tests seem a little insignificant, doesn't it? What's going on for the here and now right before me, right in front of my nose? How does that stand up compared to all of eternity? And if God rescued you from the big one, this is something that we can remind ourselves of daily. If he rescued me from the big judgment, how much more is he going to rescue me from current trials and tribulations in my life? I mean, that should be easy for him. Think of false teachers as I read this final verse, verse 10. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blasphemy the glorious ones. See, false teachers are motivated by the desire of the flesh. They are arrogant in their self-sustaining attitude. They think they can do it on their own. That's why the Bible tells us, by grace through faith, not by works, so no man can boast. So, how do you recognize a false teacher? First, I would ask this question. How do they benefit from their own teaching? What's their personal incentive to be teaching you what they're teaching? Are they gaining something from it? One thing that we try to do here and we're learning to do here at Villa's Grace. Everything that we teach, everything that we preach, we want to come from God's Word. So if we address something that might be a hot-button issue for culture, it's not a hot-button issue for us because it's in the text. It's coming from the Bible. I don't choose what I want the Bible to say. The Bible tells me what it says. And we communicate what the Bible says. I know that's a personal conviction myself, Pastor Jared, Pastor Israel, and Pastor Steve here at Villa's Grace. So when you preach truth that's controversial and you don't preach controversial truth, what is the incentive? 
Secondly, we can recognize a false teacher by asking this question. What's their attitude towards God's word? What is it? What is their attitude towards God's word? Do they come across like God is the authority? Or do they come across like their teaching is the authority? How is their teaching resonating with you? Do you get a sense that, you know, I don't think that this person is speaking to me like they think God's word is the ultimate, absolute truth, the ultimate authority in life. Church, we cannot forget that the church is under siege. Why? Why is the church under siege? Because we know the truth. We know the truth of how someone can take advantage of the judge's rescue. That's why. We go forward with that message. See, God wants to use you. He wants a sinner like you to show and to say to others, look what he did with a wretch like me. Amen? So, remain focus this morning, this one sentence that defined all these verses was this. God will rescue the godly prior to judging the wicked. The question we asked of the text this morning was this. Knowing that that is true, who are the godly? The godly are all of those who trust in Jesus for their salvation. Amen? Heavenly Father, you are an amazing creator. And all of what you do is beyond human comprehension. But what we can comprehend, it is because you have given us the knowledge and the revelation to understand what you have done. And with it being pertaining to salvation, I pray that we can run as a church with that message the good news of Jesus that we can share with others so we can see people coming to a saving faith in you. We pray all of this in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more information, look us up on our website, www.villasgrace.com or drop us a line via email, connect at villasgrace.com.